You are listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with Paul, and we're going to be wrapping up our uh, our series on the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. We've been uh, working through this series, so if you want to check out our prior episodes, they should all be uh, in our podcast, uh, wherever you find your podcasts. But uh, you can go check that out and, and pick up a copy of Orthodoxy yourself. And uh, this is kind of a maybe a selfish endeavor because I just wanted to read this because I, I haven't read it in a while. And I wanted to have a conversation partner about it. And and because usually when I talk about books with people, I understand it better. If I'm just like staring at the page and thinking about it, it just doesn't quite land with me the way that dialoguing with someone does. So that's what I'm using you for. You know what I'm saying, Paul? I am I am your dialogue partner in unconditional covenant forever, Bart Brian. Oh man, you almost made it through that sentence. Without being really weird, and you couldn't do it. You just your awkwardness. It just seeped through. It just oozed out of you. That was it, that was impressive. It was I, inspired I, by looking into your your wonderful. And you're doing it again. You just face. keep. It just keep. Just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. So uh, anyway, I mean, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this go around with orthodoxy. I always find Chesterton to be really uh, insightful. Although it does, it's hard to read, honestly. Like I'm reading it and like, it's he's one of those writers who he's got great prose and you're like, oh, that was a witty turn of phrase. But then you're like, all right, what are you saying? Like, I, I have to sit down and, and really, maybe that's the point. He, he wants you to think, but I, I, I don't know. I, I found him a little inaccessible at times. Did you feel that way? I think, he, I mean, he's not, I don't think he's the best. I don't think he's the clearest writer. I think he's got good turns of phrase. Like you said, he's got some nice prose. But I think sometimes the arguments are kind of hand wavy or incomplete, or he leaves a lot for the reader to have to put together on their own. And so this is why, like we had like different interpretations or sometimes we were just like, I don't really know what he's saying here. Could you piece together what he was trying to do? So as far as like, he, he's more poet than philosopher. I'll say that. He's not oh, and you hate but that. he's beautiful to, to read. I'll say that. Yeah. I could just hear the disdain in your voice. You're like a poet. No, no, no. <laughs> So basically, you're, you said it like someone who doesn't make any sense versus someone who does make sense. Yeah, but I, I totally grant that he's much more pleasant to read than I am, for example. Do you think there's any modern Chestertons today? Is he just kind of a dying breed? I think you asked me this like a few weeks ago. I don't know. Yeah. What I did you say? I I mean, there are we people. We can listen to the recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are people who I Bernie think Sanders. I think as, you said Bernie Sanders. As, as iresome as... Chesterton, but I don't know anyone who's got like the same kind of like prophetic speaking into culture. I don't know. Maybe culture isn't as like singularly faceted as it was in Chesterton's day. Like it's just, I don't know. What is culture anymore? There's there's too many cultures. It's difficult to keep a handle on everything. I don't know. That's my way. That's my excuse for being lazy. I guess. That's your hand wavy poetic move. I see. True. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about chapter nine. So chapter nine is called Authority and Adventure. And that's this is the last chapter. This is how he basically sums up his his book. And I love the ending of the book. It's a really mm. beautiful uh, passage. But it begins with this question. He has this long quote from, uh, I don't even remember who the guy is. He has this long quote where basically he's a, a skeptic is saying, why can't you just be an agnostic? Why, why can't you just dispose of all the dogma of Christianity and just keep the good stuff. You know, why can't you, why can't you just have the good morals, the good social teaching, the good example? Why all this stuff about resurrection, 
and spirituality and all these types of things. Does it need all this dogma? Can we just distill it to its basic, you know, good moral ideas? And uh, and so that's really what Chesterton seems to be addressing this entire chapter. Yeah, it's it's in a sense raising the question of can we live in a post-Christian society? Can we hold on to the morals, the rich view of the world, um, all of all of the good social benefits that come from Christianity without what Chesterton's calling here the dogma, specifically the miraculous stuff. And this is the stuff that the scientific mind just can't accept. So why can't we have the good stuff, care for the poor, human dignity, all the stuff that Christianity gives without accepting the resurrection and all the spooky metaphysics and dogma of Christianity? That's the challenge. I think you see that even today where there are some atheists who are advocating for a Christian morals in society or they're, they're, they're rejecting some of the progressive morality and they're almost kind of saying like it just works better whether it's true or not if if this story or this myth helps society run better helps families flourish helps there to be more order let's just take it let's just adopt it i actually think this is sort of what sometimes jordan peterson does where he's just like it doesn't matter the Ooh. dogma there's this message underneath it that we can distill and and and, and we can remove all the extra stuff and just get to this core thing I, I don't know where he is now but at least i mean a lot of the things that he talks about when he uses biblical language is really a, a liberal, a modern liberal historical critical view of the Bible. I mean, it's it's not, I don't think he views it as inspired, or at least when he talks about it, it's not inspired. It's simply the, the collection of good ideas in myth form. Um, but Chesterton's saying that this, that's not what works. And at the, at the heart of it, why people want to say, what, like you're exactly right, when they say I want to dispose of dogma, they're talking about the miraculous stuff. Like, why can't we just have the example of Jesus without him walking on water? Why can't we have the hope of Jesus without the resurrection? You know what I mean? Um, and Chesterton, actually, his response is he's saying, well, I believe in the miraculous stuff, or I, I believe in all of the Christian doctrine because I'm a rationalist. Because often we think, well, if you're rational, you've got to ditch the miraculous stuff. right? If you're just about clear thinking about how the world is, but he's saying, actually, it's because I'm devoted to having reasons for my belief. It's because I'm devoted to the intellectual life that I believe that I actually can't dismiss this dogma. So he kind of flips it on its head. It, it makes it's a counterintuitive kind of argument. But notice that he, when he says he's rational, he doesn't think that there is uh, a knockdown argument or even just a silver right. bullet for Christianity. He's he's saying the case is much more modest and subtle. Uh, and to quote him, he says. If asked as a purely intellectual question why I believe in Christianity, I can only answer for the same reason that an intelligent agnostic disbelieves in Christianity. I believe it quite rationally upon the evidence, but the evidence in my case is not really in this or that alleged demonstration, but it is an enormous accumulation of small but unanimous facts. So basically, he's saying it's a framework, it's a paradigm, it's a worldview. It's little daily things that I have woven into this web of um, helping me understand the world that it's not in the same way that I, I can't just like give you this lens or framework in a, in a sentence or two or um, over a like the course of a couple drinks in an evening. It's something that you grow into. And like C.S. Lewis says, I, I, I look at the world through the lens of Christianity and it makes sense. And so I believe Christianity 
because it makes sense of the world, not because I have this like really strong argument for it. So it's a much more subtle rationalistic case, but he thinks it's the same thing that the atheist and the agnostic does too. We all piece together all these little bits of evidence and data and construct a story about the world. Chesterton's just saying that the Christian story is a lot more compelling and coherent than the competing stories. It's a good thing to think about too, because there's no slam dunk argument, but there's also no slam dunk argument against God. It's a kind of a very reductionistic view, but mm-hmm. how we actually come to form beliefs is a very holistic kind of thing. We're kind of weaving together uh, our upbringing, our experiences, cultural experiences, things we've read, people we know, uh, family members, all these types of things kind of form together to n- not to um, they, 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 they form together to make something plausible in your mind. Right. And belief isn't just things that you're just like, I think this proposition is true, although that I, certainly that's part of it. But I think he's saying there's more to it about being a Christian than just I'm convinced of these particular logical arguments. And he's, but I, I think that the point is, you know, you're, you're you're offering a good point there, where it's like, well, an agnostic is not; they don't have this slam dunk argument against God's existence. They just it's just a kind of observations, things they've experienced, things they've read, people they're around, and it forms this sort of composite where they go. I just don't know if we can know there's a God. So mm-hmm. I think what Chesterton is trying to do is trying to level the playing field. Because oftentimes, again, we think about people, it's like Christians are the blindsided ones. Christians are the ones who refuse to investigate, but agnostics are the ones who are really investigating. Mm-hmm. And he's going, actually, you're not. Because there are many things that you haven't taken into account. And also, you're doing the same thing. You're not right. as intellectual as you think you are in your agnosticism. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually lists out three arguments. These are kind of like arguments that are just common. Maybe maybe it's better to say these are sentiments that he feels people have, like agnostics have, that disprove God's existence. The first is that men are like beasts, that we just seem so animalistic. Uh, we don't seem like we're these image bearers of God or that we have anything special about us. We just seem like we follow the laws of nature. And I think you see that a lot today. People talk about dynamics, social dynamics, and, and the, you know, we're just kind of, you know, beholden to our base desires and our animal desires and all these types of things. So men are like beasts. That's the first one. The second is uh, religion came out of ignorance and fear. And that's a pretty common one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the idea that today we have technology, we have science, we're more well-read, we've got centuries of reflection, thousands of years of, of reflection, whereas back in the day, they had no electricity. They thought rain came from a god or something like that flying around in the sky. And, and they, they're just, they're superstitious, they're ignorant, they're fearful, they can't control the world, they can't control the weather, they can't do anything. So it lends themselves to a kind of superstitious atmosphere in which, of course, they're going to believe something like this. So, so religion comes out of ignorance and fear. That's kind of, we feel that's true even Mm -hmm. today. So we feel like men are like animals and we feel like religion came out of ignorance. And finally, priests make society bitter and gloomy, which that one's actually true. That one's actually true. There's there's a point there. (laughs) But but there is this kind of vision of like, like even when we think about people being puritanical, like we think no fun and just dreary and gray tones and just rain and misery. Or you think about the medieval age. Yeah, yeah, you would love that. (laughs) Or the medieval times, you think about the, it's like every, always the Crusades and the Inquisition, you know, 
and just just burning heretics at the stake and the Salem witch trials. And you think about it's just bitter and gloomy, but also just the the repression that religion brings. You know, back back in the day, we were so repressed. We couldn't do anything. And it was all gloomy. And I have to say, hearing those, I'm like, well, I think we've all kind of they're they're they're, they're not necessarily arguments as they are kind of just, again, sentiments that we, we kind of assume that these things are true. And Chesterton's going, well, you haven't examined them enough because if you really think about them, they're, they're, they're not true, right? Um, so he kind of starts to refute them, but go ahead. I was just going to say the, um, the first one is interesting just because if you think about when he's writing, he's writing in the UK like 30, 40 years after Darwin published The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man. And so evolution by natural selection was a you know, that was the hot new theory of the day. And so, I mean, this objection, even though we feel it today, we would have felt it much more, or Chesterton's audience would have felt it much more, that humans are very much like other animals. And people are talking about evolution and common descent. And we all come from the same ancestor. And there's no really qualitative difference between humans as a rational animal versus other apes and primates and even more primordial life forms. And, and so it's, it is interesting that you can see how like cultural moments and historical moments shape a cultural imagination. And so writing in the wake of Darwin, like he's clearly got Darwin in mind and he mentions mm -hmm. evolution specifically a few times in this chapter. While evolution isn't by itself atheistic, um, it does, it can lead to this sentiment, which is something to like at least be cautious of. And Chesterton's really good to point that out that even if you accept a, um, a view of common descent or evolution, it doesn't level and equalize humans and other animals and put everything on a common playing field, even if there are similarities. Um, but it's, just, it's another example of how Chesterton really does know his audience. And you can see him as a good diagnostician of culture um, in, in his raising and observation of that sentiment. But what were you going to say was the knockdown of, of those three? Well, I don't know if it's a knockdown so much as it is he's sparring with common sense. And I think the agnostic argument that men are like beasts, we're just like animals, it seems like, oh yeah, that's common sense. Like if you just weren't trying to be pretentious and you just talked and observed and, and talked about the human nature, you'd be like, we're all just animals. But the chestnut goes, actually, if you use common sense, we're nothing like animals, or at least mm -hmm. we are similar to animals. But what's crazy is given that we're similar to them, how different we actually are. And he uses the example, I think right. of like, gorillas or, or monkeys something like they, they all have they have thumbs but they don't mm -hmm. build like statues they don't make art but men right. do so we both right. have hands we both have an, we both have a thumb but something in man caused him to build cathedrals that uh that is not the case with with animals and yeah. i thought that was interesting because when you think about that you're like oh yeah i mean that that's true too and again he's using common sense to be like we're, we're very biased, I think, and selective in, in how we gather support for these for, for, for the existence of God or anything like that. But I think it is true. Like he's like, man, think about actually how how towering he says the towering uh, eccentricity of man over brute is actually proof of God's existence, that we are so advanced and so beyond, you know, these apes that uh, that that should point to something unique about, about humanity. Which kind of shows us the, um, the allure or the appeal of some of these sentiments, because there is some truth to them. And this is one of those things where 
And in all of Chesterton's objections to these sentiments, he's not saying that there's there completely there's no merit right. to them. Sure, obviously there's a similarity between humans and, and non-human animals. We're all biological organisms. You can look at social lives. You can look at the size of the brain. You can look at the, there's shared morphological, physiological features. But also, if you emphasize that to the detriment of looking at all the other evidence, the contrasts, right? You're just seeing like a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the overall picture. I mean, it is just, it's insane to look at humans and not see that there's something qualitatively distinct about humans versus every other species on the planet. There's a rationality. No other species buries their dead. No other species makes art. No other species um, transmits and improves on information generation to generation. Like that is just unheard of. Like we have an ability to retain culture and expand culture and we do things that have no survival value, like art and music. And we don't have to make our places of worship beautiful, but we do. And we don't have to make our places of living beautiful, but we do. And we enjoy looking at nature and like that ability to enjoy the world in a kind of leisurely way, in an artsy, artistic, beautiful, just um, non-instrumental, non-consequentialistic way. Chesterton's like, look at us. We are like the beauty-making, meaning-making creatures. And if you if that doesn't strike you as obvious, then maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe you're just your corner of humanity that you're experiencing is very impoverished and you need to just get out a little bit more. You need new friends. You need, you need new, new friends. You need new friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, then he takes aim at the objection that religion came out of a time of ignorance and fear. And it's interesting how he responds to it. On the one hand, he talks about how things like human sacrifice, the things we normally associate with like a fear-driven religion are actually a later invention. That's something that mm. he argues for, that that's actually not what historic religions did. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just what he said. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing is the almost a unanimous vision that uh, the older days were better than the days today, or, or rather there was a time of great happiness in the past, and then there was a fall. And he kind of is tongue-in-cheek where he's like, Almost all the legends have this fall. Uh, and because everyone remembers that time, it must not have happened. Uh, so, you know, but, but again, I think he talks about how a lot of people are thinking, well, okay, that was a time of ignorance, of foolishness. Uh, uh, but actually, um, he, he says, no, actually, a lot of these religions have a sense that things were once really good. Mm -hmm. But something disastrous has happened. Obviously, we have the doctrine of the fallen Christianity. But uh, I thought that was an interesting argument that he that he lays against that idea that it rose out of ignorance and fear. Yeah, and it's um it, it's one of those things where if, if you're if you're a skeptical uh, mind looking at the evidence, you can interpret the evidence uncharitably, like you said, and be like, well, everyone believed it, so clearly it was just the sort of thing that was made up, right? Because they couldn't all arrive at the same fact. Just independently, but Chesson says, or you, or you can look at that evidence and say, no, this is actually really good evidence that this did happen, because everyone, we have like individual corroborating, um, independent corroborating of the same historical event, right? And so either you say it's a common myth and everyone is just like deceived together, or this actually is lots of really good evidence for um, the truth of this fact that there there was a fall, there was something, there's something not right about nature, there's something not right about the way that we are. Um, and so again, another instance of how your background assumptions 
will factor into how you interpret the evidence. Because you can just as easily go the either way, go the other um, interpretation on this and take the more charitable one. The third objection that he deals with is the idea that priests make society bitter and gloomy, that religion just is just, just killjoy. And then he makes an argument that uh, the places where the churches had the most influence, and I think he's talking about Christianized Europe, they have the most singing and dancing. Um, and then he, now, maybe that's true or not. I mean, I, I don't know in a fluid history, but but he, he's saying that he's making an argument that Christian societies do have a lot of joy. But then he uses this illustration that I thought was fascinating, where he talks about uh, children, they're playing by a cliff and there's a wall that protects them from falling off the cliff. And that's how they can play and dance around because the wall protects them from falling off the cliff. Mm -hmm. But if you remove the, the, uh, the wall and you go back and you find out that these kids are huddled in the corner, they can't play at all because they're worried they're going to fly off the edge. And I think he's making an argument for Christianity, that Christianity is that wall that allows us to have joy because it gives us you know, offense as, as to use, I think what, what Chesterton speaks about in other places, like the, the wall is there to protect us from destroying ourselves, but also to preserve our joy so that our joy doesn't become our destruction. If you take the wall away, we jump off the cliff. I thought that was a fascinating way to describe sort of the, the social effect of, of Christianity, mm -hmm. um, not just the personal, but how it can affect the society. That restraint actually is what preserves joy. Yeah. Because it preserves I mean, you from going into vice. Even more than that, that it's Christianity that enables <laughs> secularism and paganism. So the, the wall and the kids, the kids playing, he's imagining as he's like, that's the pagan, that's the secular, that's the, the social world that we live in. But you can only have pagan secular joys and delights and ideals <laughs> if you have a christian framework he yeah, says christianity is the only frame which preserves the pleasures of paganism and so the right. kids that are playing unbeknownst to them like they're being kept safe from all of these other dangers that they never even thought about mm -hmm. and so the the pagan world the secular world's reliance on concepts of human dignity and beauty and the, the rich history that they are inheritors of like it's people are just not cognizant that all those things are only possible because they're sitting on a foundation of Christian teaching and philosophy and history and policy and all that sort of stuff. So, so Christianity's walls enable paganism's flourishing, which is a really interesting inversion of um, the pagan or the secular objector. Until the reformed Protestants broke down the Catholic wall and everyone just got, <laughs> just jumped off the, the cliff and, and destroyed everything. The kids were but, not allowed to play anymore. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Now that the Protestants are in charge, there is no fun. Fun <laughs> is over. But that is true. And I think it's, you know, maybe it's interesting to think about, about how Christianity can affect a society, you know, and that even if it just encodes moral values, um, I think it would be foolish to think that it doesn't affect a society, you know? Um, so something, something curious to, to, to consider from Chesterton. But again, I mean, I think if you want to just get a gist of his arguments, he's, he's again, he's trying to fight common sense with common sense. He's like, mm -hmm. if you just want to talk plainly about the world, we can do that. Um, but I love how he talks plainly about some myths about Christianity. These are great. He says that there's a myth that Jesus was basically gentle and ineffective, <laughs> you know, just sort of a nice guy wandering around. And then he says, that's not true. Jesus flipped tables. He, he said he had lips of thunder. Mm -hmm. He cast out devils. And I love this. He says he acted like an angry God. 
and always like a God. Mm -hmm. That's some good stuff. So, and he says like when people talk about Jesus, they use sweet syrupy language, you know, nice, gentle language. But when Jesus actually speaks, when Jesus actually talks, instead of being talked about, he is this force of nature. Mm -hmm. He speaks very decisively, very pointedly, very directly and forcefully in many instances. I thought that was great. I like that. I think this is where... I think this is where Lewis is getting his um, his trilemma about Jesus and mere Christianity, the liar, lunatic Lord. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the language at the end of that quote that you were um, that you brought up, he's talking about Jesus here. That Jesus uses other, even wilder words on the sides of non-resistance. Um, we cannot explain it by calling such a being insane, for insanity is usually along one consistent channel. The maniac is generally a monomaniac. Here we must remember the difficult definition of Christianity already given. Christianity is a superhuman paradox whereby two opposite passions may blaze beside each other. The one explanation of the gospel language that does does explain it is that it is the survey of one from whom some supernatural height beholds some more startling synthesis. So back to the initial challenge, why can't we just take the good stuff and leave out the metaphysics and the doctrine? You can raise the same question with Jesus. Why can't we just take the good teachings and leave out all the other radical claims to divinity? Um, again, Chesterton says that they they come together. You can't you can't just separate out one from the other. Um, and like Lewis argues, you know, fifty years later, a, a just a good teacher doesn't call themselves God and go around to the temple whipping people for defiling his father's right. house, yeah. forgiving sins, all this sort of stuff. So you can't have it both ways. Um, he also talks about how uh, Christianity uh, flourished in the, uh, the medieval ages in a time of ignorance. This is sort of similar to his uh, uh, the objection that he saw in skeptics. But I thought uh, his comments are actually Christianity took us out of the dark ages, took medieval the took took the medieval world out uh, away from darkness into into light, so to speak, by preserving the best of I guess Western culture. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth, but I thought that was interesting. I mean, it, it, I think it, there's there's truth to that, but I don't know enough about history to uh, maybe maybe confirm that claim. What do You're you showing, think? Showing your true colors. I know. No, I, I don't know. I'm not a historian either, but I, I do think it's interesting. The more interesting argument that I thought he raises is the one where he says, well, look, Christianity didn't die out when Rome died out. Which oh, is, yeah, that's it. Like, yep. if, it's, if it's just this religion of peasants... Uh, I'm just going to read, he's got some nice lines. What is this incomparable energy which appears first in one walking the earth like a living judgment? He's talking about Jesus. And this energy which can die with a dying civilization and yet force it to a resurrection from the dead. This energy which last of all can inflame a bankrupt peasantry with so fixed a faith in justice that they get what they ask while others go empty away so that the most helpless island of the empire can actually help itself. So... Christianity doesn't die with the death of Rome, but actually Christianity is Rome resurrected. <laughs> and I don't know if that's like in a the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> no, but I thought it was good where he's like saying Christianity didn't rise in the mid- in the medieval times. It it came into being at the height of the Roman Empire. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Like really with work. with peasants and uh it wasn't it wasn't the elite trying to sort of make a name for themselves like these yeah. were people who were being killed and persecuted and it was in those 
um, circumstance that Christianity spread like wildfire. And then, like historically, if you were to predict what would happen to this peasant religion, you'd be like, oh yeah, it just got wiped out when the Goths came down and destroyed Rome. Right. But actually, but no, it survived. Like it ended up yeah. taking over all of Europe. And yeah. so this is an argument for the papacy and why we should all become Roman Catholics. <laughs> there you go. I want to go back to his main point, and he basically talks about that toward the end, where he makes the case that for miracles, if you don't believe miracles, uh, rather he says people who believe miracles believe it because of evidence, that there are accounts that miracles have happened. Of course, in the Bible, there's miracles that have happened. If you say they didn't, despite the evidence, that's because of your dogma that miracles can't happen. And this is a lot like C.S. Lewis's book on miracles, where he's basically saying you have to assume that miracles don't happen and then read mm -hmm. the evidence in light of that, right? But if you're really looking at the evidence, then you have to count those testimonies as legitimate or at least important data points to take into consideration. But I mean, I love that. I mean, he basically makes that case where he says, you guys are the ones with dogma because you're saying that there can't be anything outside of the natural world, that naturalism is true, materialism is true, it can't be a supernatural realm, any of these types of things. Um, You're, so th and that that's one horn of the dilemma. Either you are an, a dogmatist. The other horn of the dilemma is he thinks you're either an elitist yeah, because the right. people who are reporting miracle claims are peasants. Yeah. And so he says, if you, enlightened Englishman, <laughs> reject the peasant story about the ghost, either because the man is a peasant or because the story is about a ghost, <laughs> in one case, you're an elitist because you're deciding, I'm not going to believe anything that peasants say. On the other hand, I'm just going to adopt this dogmatism, this principle of materialism about this abstract impossibility of miracles. So either way, you're screwed. And it's a really effective argument in our day and age, right? Because we don't like, no one wants to be an elitist. <laughs> no one wants to be a dogmatist. And so I think that, that that argument is very rhetorically powerful now. And so it means that we have to be open to the possibility of miracles. So we don't just end up saying, oh, look, it's only backwards poor people who believe in the resurrection. Or I'm just never going to believe in miracles just because I have this dogmatic principle. Both are errors that the modern mindset wants to avoid. And so I think Chesterton here is going to be really rhetorically affected even in the 21st century. Yeah, he's basically saying either you deny that the person is worthy of listening to mm -hmm. or you just deny whatever they say because of a pre-commitment to right. naturalism. Mm -hmm. And he also says, look, it was like blue collar fishermen. Yeah. <laughs> who who see these things. Yep. It wasn't like spiritualists. Like it wasn't like people with an agenda. Now, I guess there could be skepticism though. I mean, like, I don't know, people get abducted by UFOs. I mean, you know, <laughs> what, what do you do with that? Are you because you might be like, yeah, I don't really trust that guy's eyewitness testimony. Sure. I mean, well, but to but to rule it out off the bat as just an impossibility because of a metaphysical commitment or just because they're poor or something, right? Like if I say I don't believe in UFOs, it's because I've got good evidence that like one, people don't really know what they mean when they're UFOs. Like, is it like from another planet? Is it another sure. dimension? It's unclear what's even being claimed here. Um, and so, like, I think the UFO example is a little bit different. But, yeah, I think Chesterton does want to say you want to have um, an open mind. But as he says elsewhere, not too open that your brain falls out. There you go. Um, one of his great illustrations, too, is is he illustrates, uh, you know, having a father telling you that you can get stung in a garden or, like, different aspects of like life, mm -hmm. you know? And he's, I think he says, when a bee stings you, you don't go, well, I'll just take the kernel of like truth or like, I'll, I'll just say that that's a coincidence when you know that your father told you that that's what's going to happen 
or he uses these experiences where uh, basically that God, you, you find certain things that God says to be true. Why couldn't that lend God credibility about the things that you're not, that don't seem to be true yet end up being true? Um, maybe that's a convoluted way of saying it, but I guess it would be just if, if, if your dad's telling you life lessons and you notice that some of them actually do come true, you shouldn't pick and choose and be like, well, he was just right those few times. You might be like, no, my dad's trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And so if he tells me about other things that I'm not going to immediately see the effect of, I should believe him there. You know, if he tells me that the toaster's hot and if I touch it, I'll burn my hand and that happens, then I could probably believe him if he says you need to get a good education and you need to work hard and you need to be you know, cordial people or something like that. I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. And and I think he's saying um, it's another it's another example of you having this inheritance that you don't recognize later on. You don't recognize how much you owe to those formative people and years and principles and experiences. And you think you can go on with your life uh, without those things, but whether or not you acknowledge them they're always there. And it, it's it's another way of putting the point about Christianity, I think, that even if the secular mindset has espoused post-Christianism, it can only do so because it's 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 been formed by Christian principles right. and people and minds and experiences. So I think maybe that's another, yeah, another yeah, example lot, of that point. Even just the, the Western tradition of thinking, a lot of it has been shaped by Christianity and our, just the way we look at the world has been shaped by Christianity in a lot of ways that we're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And so if it's worked to make sense of the world for so long, and if we are finite creatures, then there are some things that aren't, we're not going to be able to uncover that, that we need, uh, how would I put it? That we should expect Christianity to tell us things that we don't immediately think are like True. How could that be? Like he used the example of original sin. Mm-hmm. That's not a very attractive idea. We're like, I don't like that idea. Like I wouldn't come up with that idea. And yet you see that it's true. You see empirically over and over again that there is this thing called original sin that we all have. And it just proves itself over and over again. And so it's one of those things where our father is wiser than we are. And that Christianity is wiser than our sort of man-made ways of constructing the world. And mm-hmm. even if we try to construct like a post-Christian worldview... We can't do it without using the parts of Christianity or a, a, as a foundation to build that worldview on top of. Yeah. And and part of the appeal of Christianity is it says the true thing, but the true thing that's not the obvious thing. And he that's, thinks yeah. that's 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 a mark of uh, Christianity's uh, – he thinks that, that that's a mark of its truth. And so he, he re- kind of wraps up saying – all philosophies say things that plainly seem true, right? but this philosophy has again and again said the thing that doesn't seem to be true, but is true. Alone of all the creeds, it is convincing where it is not attractive. It turns out to be right. So it is, it's a philosophy that gets things right, but not obviously so. There had, like, there's a little bit of, so in, in one sense, Christianity, there is a kind of commonsensical dimension to it. But there is also a kind of like, there's a deeper richness. There's a Christianity says this thing that it it is admittedly counterintuitive. Like you said, like about the fall, original sin, Mm -hmm. or the state of humanity. But upon further investigation, you go, oh, actually, it is true, even though it's counterintuitive or unattractive. And so the, the philosophy that is unattractive and true, he thinks, 
that's something that we should look and pay special attention to. And so maybe that's his way of summing up the Christian picture. <laughs> In some aspects, it's unattractive, but it is true. And that we couldn't predict that it would be true where it said it would be true, that is a mark in its favor. It's just like us, unattractive, but true, <laughs> right? We are the best apologetic That's for Christianity. The story of it's my not, life. It's not true at all. It's not true at all. But uh, I, yeah, I do. Th I do like that where he's he's basically kind of humbling us, and he's saying that, in a sense, Christianity is wiser than we are, and that you can tell wisdom when things that don't seem to be on its face the way things are. Mm -hmm. uh, are revealed to us like like Christianity will say things like dying leads to life, and you know talking about uh, 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 you know humbling yourself, God exalts you. It just doesn't seem like like we wouldn't. That's not how we would construct things, and yet we find it to be true as time unravels. Hmm. And um, yeah, there's a lot to think about. Um, but the best part I think of the book is his talk about joy. And he ends his book. I just want to read a little portion of it because it's, I think it's so well written. He says that, um, that he talks about Jesus concealing something. He said uh, he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth, his joy. That that was the secret of Jesus. Mm. He had this thunderous joy that he restrained because we weren't ready to see it. And I think that's really the heart of what Chesterton's arguing for, where he's saying that the problem is in us, that we can't see the beauty of Christianity. The problem mm -hmm. is in us that we cling to these man-made kind of worldviews and systems of thinking when, you know, we, again, in earlier chapters, he says, we think that God's monotonous and boring, but actually mm -hmm. the fact that God's monotonous shows that he never loses delight in doing the same thing over and over again. That yeah. he's more joyful and playful than we are. So that's that's the flip. That's the it doesn't seem true. And then he flips it on its head. It's like, oh yeah, God's boring. It's like, no, think about it. If he's causing the sun to rise every single day, there's a joy and a playfulness to God. There's a happiness mm -hmm. to God that is beyond anything that we can imagine. And he's saying the same thing with Jesus. It's almost like Jesus is kind of, he's like sly. He's like kind of smiling at the corner of his mouth and just saying, like, you don't understand the joy I'm leading you to. And isn't that the truth? I mean, I think part of conversion is realizing that God is good mm -hmm. and that what he says and commands is good. And he's leading his people to a good place. And the fact that we don't see that says more about us yeah. than, than, than Christ. Yeah. And it, it, it's a, it's a Catholic argument for the importance and utility of regeneration I mean, it's an argument being made by a Catholic for this very reformed traditional idea that until your affections are changed, you won't see the difficult things of the gospel as good and beautiful. And so in one sense, yeah. Chesterton here is challenging us. Why do you think that what you think is intuitive and attractive, that that's where the buck stops? That I think 
the doctrine of the fall, that I think the Christian sexual ethic, that I think all of these difficult things in the Christian story are difficult or unappealing, why should you trust yourself that you have the right spin on these things, that you have the right assessment and evaluation of what's beautiful and what's good and what's ugly and what's repulsive? Sometimes we get those things right, but we should also have a, a sort of cultivate a healthy um, sense of caution that we don't often like, and, and he points to these examples, we get bored with the monotonous. We get bored with things that are difficult. We get bored with things that are good in themselves, the commitment, the rules. So we don't really have a very reliable sense of picking out the beautiful, the good, and the true. And so with that, we have to rely on God's miraculous intervention to cultivate in us a proper sense of seeing the good thing as good and seeing the bad thing as bad. And sin is what distorts and flips those two in us. And so it's a call to renewed affections. And until we have that renewed vision, we won't be able to see Christianity as beautiful in its totality. It's well said. It's well said. This is a great chapter to read. And I've certainly enjoyed this time in Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. If you guys haven't picked up Orthodox, make sure you get it. It's a great read. Take your time with it. Hopefully this podcast series can be a helpful guide as you read through it. Uh, a lot of this is us just bantering back and forth, just trying to get, get a grasp on it. But I think that's probably what Cheston would have wanted. He probably would have wanted Christians and skeptics alike to sit around and kind of go through these ideas and think about them and mm-hmm. play with them and to really engage our minds. But also I think our affections. And he's, he's a very witty writer. He writes very poetically. And I think it's an interesting example to help us think about how people are actually convinced of things. It's There's an aesthetic appeal too. There's a putting forth the beauty of Christianity and, and even the common sense of Christianity. We can get so lost in abstract debates that we miss the earthiness of Christianity and the humility of it. And mm. I think there's a lot to be learned there. But uh, make sure you guys uh, pick up the book. And if you like this podcast, share with your friends, subscribe. False on Instagram, Battle Preach Podcast is our handle. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening in, and we'll see you guys next week.